Welcome back to Time for Heroes podcast. This week's guest is Billy Vitch. Billy Vitch is a live music photographer and he's also running his own online music magazine. Billy's based in Liverpool and we spoke about his life growing up and adoption and an early life of crime before he turned his life around. We spoke about all of that and obviously picked his four heroes to come for dinner. I hope you all enjoy the podcast and I'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Billy Vitch. Thank you. Photographer and writer, amongst other things. We'll get on to it. We'll touch on all your, all your work that you're into at the moment. But I'd like to go back to the start and kind of where you grew up, how you came to be in the industry that you're in. So just kind of tell us a bit about how life was for you growing up. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's 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 quite a complex one, isn't it, Tony? Because you know, I, I was raised in the care system primarily. Um, so I was born in 1980. My mother was from Hartlepool. She was so she was Scottish descendant. They were all like Yorkshire mining family. Mm-hmm. She was like eleven of ten. Um, you know, horrific poverty they were experiencing growing up. Um, and most of the kids from my mother's side all ended up in care. Um, my mum ended up in London and via London she ended up in Nottingham so I think she might have been about 21 and I was born um, to my father's Jamaican, his name's Owen Bruce Reed. he's, he's an okay guy we, we, we're, we're in touch now but you know basically you know um, through my mum's hectic lifestyle, I don't have much knowledge of it, but I ended up in the care system. Um, she ended up in prison. Yeah. Um, for a lot, I think it was a lot of petty stuff for my mum. I think, um, you know, she was a product of her environment growing up in the care system herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the lifestyle, she was just probably trying to survive, you know, you know, yeah, involved with petty crime and stuff. So I was born... Um, at this, you know, around that time when I was about 18 months old, when she first went to prison, I was still with her. I had a little brother who was born, so Lee was born um, in 1981, April. So there's 14 months between me and him. Um, and after being put around a few um, foster parents, we got adopted pretty quickly together, me and my brother. Um, by a family from Liverpool, well, you know, a husband and wife from Liverpool who were quite young. I think they were like 27. Um, and they, they were a white family. Me and my brother, you know, were both um, mixed um, heritage, you know, Jamaican, you know, British, um, but we're very, very dark, you know, considering that we're actually halfy half. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm, I've done one of those genealogy things recently. I've come back like 37% Scottish. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Because my biological family's name's Reed, right? Um, and through looking through genealogy things, Reed was two brothers from Lowland Scotland who went to Jamaica and had plantations, and obviously slept with some of the slaves. And that's sort of where my Scottish heritage comes from on that side. So, and in some way, you might be related to the Proclaimers. Possibly, I don't think that's a bad one, though, is it? There's, there's worse, like. Yeah. yeah, there's better as well though. <laughs> so um yeah, so I ended up you know adopted by this family and 
they were from extremely impoverished areas in Liverpool, um, you know, really working class people. And they, I don't know what they thought, you know, but back then there was very little support. And I think the system was very much of the thought that if children were offered love and care um, and the parents were in full-time employment, anyone could adopt any child. So, you know, looking back now, um, it's very hard now for people to adopt um, kids that aren't the same race as them within Britain. They have, they have a lot of um, a lot of boxes you have to tick. So if you're a white couple or a white single person and you want to adopt a black child, there has to be reasons why you want to adopt that child and you have to prove that you're going to educate that child in their own black history and things. There's a lot of stuff that you have to be involved yeah. in regarding heritage, but back then there wasn't. Um, so these two lovely people, they adopted me and my brother and just I think they thought love was enough. Um, and we moved to Southport, which is um, a Victorian seaside town, um, about 27 miles away from the city centre of Liverpool. Um, very affluent, um, but again has its own poverty issues. And for for a long time, we, we I guess we were lower working class. You know, we, it was the 80s, and my father who adopted me um, was becoming quite successful. He he he, he was um, trained with Hoover, uh, manufacturer of washing machines and things. Um, so, but in the 80s, when you bought a washing machine. There was no one to fix it. There was no such thing as catalogs and things. So you really had to go to the distributor. So if you were trained by Hoover as an electrical engineer, you had a really stable and steady income fixing washing machines and things because it was mainly affluent people who could yeah. afford these things. Um, come the beginning of the 90s, all that dynamics changed. You know, um, how you could pay for goods and services Um extended warranties and things and poorer people could invest in these electrical equipment so that kind of destroyed the market because uh -huh. they weren't really valuable items anymore so to service them wasn't really a well-paid job so we went from living in like a four-bedroom victorian house probably now on the market for 350k or something mm -hmm. you know that's the equivalent today to living in a two-bedroom flat that's how yes, we drop. Mm, so, you know, through all that, my hate, you know, there's been attempts through the years to diagnose me with um, ADHD and things. Uh -huh. But as a child, there wasn't really any, if we weren't diagnosing it then. Um, so I was just seen as a naughty child. Um, my behavior, when I talk naughty, I wasn't kind of. It's hard to. I wasn't. I wasn't bad. I think there's a there's not a correlation between naughty and bad. They can be two different things. Yeah. So mischievous, uh, inquisitive, mm -hmm. um, not understanding boundaries. You know, no, the word no. Yeah. Um. So they got me in a lot of trouble, and then you're being in this town, this Victorian seaside town at the time. You know. There was probably eight black people in a town with a population of maybe 150,000 people then. Um, you know, there might have been more, but from 
you know, I remember one, it was a rarity, so everyone knew the Black family. So there was the Neblets and there was the Collins, and then there was the Barclays, and that was spread throughout the town. Now, I wasn't from one of these Black families, but that's how very few Black people you had. Um, and, like, racism wasn't really, it didn't really, um, it didn't really come into it. I didn't experience much racism until I got to my teens. Um and that's sort of another story. So leading up to that, all these behavioural problems were going on. Um, and it became unmanageable for my parents. They didn't know what to do with me. Um, social services came up with all these wonderful ideas of putting me in residential schools. Um, now, remember at the time, like we called them naughty boy schools. That's how they were sort of labelled throughout society. And, you know, although they would have been classed as reform schools, maybe, um, yeah, terminology-wise, it was normal just to say it was a naughty boys' school. Now looking back, that's setting a child up for failure. That isn't it? You know, letting them believe that yeah. he's going to a naughty boys' school, um, and that's where things massively shifted because I went from having quite a reasonable, you know, apart from the very early years of my life, having quite. So this happened when I was about ten. I got put in my first residential. I was yeah. adopted when I was two. So, you know, between two and ten, there'd been a massive period of stability um, within quite a, you know, the, we didn't, we weren't suffering abject poverty. We didn't have a lot, but, you know, it was a nice way, like probably the happiest years, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So when I got put in these residential schools, I'm being put in these schools now with kids who are coming from extreme trauma, you know, from inner cities like Birmingham, um, Manchester, Liverpool, and these kids are coming from backgrounds where mum and dad are heroin addicts. Um, you know, mum's a prostitute, dad's an arm robber. Um, some of these kids have witnessed murders. Um, yeah. So I'm getting this little naughty boy thrown in with children who are experiencing, you know, yeah, catastrophic trauma. <laughs> it. it I don't know. Like I had to, I had to grow up quickly. Do you know what I mean? Like so, the first one I went to was a place called Shotton Hall, and that was in Shrewsbury in Shropshire. Uh-huh. I remember being dropped off by my parents and everything. And when we got to the school, we were told we were allowed to smoke uh, with parents' consent. We were given pocket money. We were dropped off in the town centre on a Friday and Saturday, and we were allowed to go to like the teen scene nightclubs. Um, they had a car racing track. Where they bought us a Datsun Sunny, an old Datsun Sunny. They put a roll cage in it and taught us how to drive. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we had this. Is, this is this is what I, this was all in my doorstep. You know, on this, it was um, a converted stately home. That's the building we were living in. Uh-huh. So we had that. We were going mountain climbing every weekend, rock climbing, um, caving, canoeing. Um, so, and between that, being able to do anything I wanted, so I became quite feral. Um, yeah. It suited me in that time, but you know that it was it was a hotbed of abuse at the same time, um, physical, mental, sexual. Um, you know, and I don't think I questioned any of it at the time. It was just I learned very very young i remember the first night of the first it was one of the first nights 
and I'd been in the classroom with this other boy and he was a scouse kid and I can't remember what the argument was, but there'd been an argument between me and him. And he was he was a lot smaller than me. I'm like six foot two now, but I was probably about five ten then, and he was probably about five foot. Mm-hmm. Mickey, his name was. And nothing got said. The, the fight got split up in the classroom, and I was like, that's over with. And that had sort of been my experience of fighting up until then. The adults split it up, and that was it kind of thing. Nothing really went down. And then I was in bed late that night, and I shared a room with three other children. Um, Charlie Richard and the kid we called Peck because he was small. It's a terrible thing to call him, but <laughs> kids are quite evil, aren't we? And the door opened, and this kid, Mickey, come in, and I'm lying in bed. And he's ran over, he's punched me in the nose, and my nose has exploded. And I remember lying there crying, and I remember like the bewilderment because the other three children in the room didn't even try and help or do anything. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, what, the, what, where am I? What is this? Do you know what I mean? I hadn't experienced, I'd never been hit before. I'd never yeah. experienced anything like that. Um, and it was that shock of, I think, always feeling really protected to actually being in a situation yeah. where that protection is completely and utterly gone. It wasn't, it didn't happen in several stages it literally as soon as i walked into that school that protection yeah that, that went yeah. um vulnerable yeah because it was uh, there was all that naivety wasn't there do you know what i mean i didn't you know so that became a hotbed of physical violence and, and i learned pretty early on that the way to get through that was to attack first that's pretty much what it was, do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. and you're talking attack first from the slightest thing, you know, someone walks in front of you in the queue, hit them with your plate, like, literally, that's the way you're going in, do you know what I mean? Because the adults were always close by, and you sort of knew that anything like that, there'd be a situation called restraining, where adults are taught... Um, now it's a lot safer, but they were taught ways of how to subdue a child that was being violent or, you know, kicking off or whatever. And, you know, it, it was very, you know, it, I class it as child abuse now when I look back at what the, the adults done to us as far as that, you know, it was techniques where you would feel your arm was being broken, but they weren't, but it wasn't being broken. Right. You know, quite, um, quite insidious techniques, do you know what I mean? Because it was... Yeah, I mean, bear in mind that you're children at the end of the day. Mm. It's like, Do you know what I mean? Like, I've never come into a situation in my life as a 41-year-old man where I felt that I had to physically attack a child for their own safety or for my safety. I've, I've never come into a situation where back then it was just, that was just every day. Yeah. You know, you told a member of staff to fuck off. But, um, sorry about swearing, by the way. Um, you would get, that would happen, you know, and it became a form of, you know, I, th- I think a lot of staff used it as a way to be violent without being violent, if that makes any sense. It was sort of like by restraining the child, you were staying within the boundaries of what was acceptable yeah. back then. So, you know, if I told a member of staff to F off, he was quite within his rights to punch me in the side of the head, 
jump on me with 22 stone man, put my arms up my back and, you know, and that was seemed as acceptable to restrain a child, do you know what I mean? Um, that's, that's disgusting, isn't it? Uh, it, it? It is messed up when you think about it, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? And, like, I never, I never knew that was abuse me. Like, it was only in my 30s when I sat down and sort of had some counselling that someone was like, you've been abused, you know? And I'm like, what are you on about? Um, you know, so I went through several of these schools where this was the norm, do you know what I mean? Um, the sexual stuff was very, um, was very mild. It was very, it was all suggestive stuff, you know, um, adults talking to, to me about masturbation and things and, stuff that there and then I wouldn't have it wasn't outright nonsense do you know what I mean where like you know what I mean so like it was it was the subtleties of predators I guess yeah but you know is that them then I'd imagine that same sussing sussing you yeah 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 target yeah yeah so I, I really avoided a lot of the sexual stuff because I was I was pretty explosive you know, and now, now as an adult, you know, you know that they go for the quiet ones and, yeah. you know, so that there was a lot of that going on, but, you know, there was a lot of it going on from other kids as well. So at one point, I must have been about, it must have been about 1992, and one day, I can't remember how it happened because there must have been 350 kids, but we all ended up being sent home to our parents because we used to go home every fortnight for a weekend. We were allowed to go home every fortnight for a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um and we all got sent home, and it turned into this big police investigation. Um, now, looking back now, it turned out that it was um, it was the Welsh Children's Home um, child abuse scandal. Right. That's what was. That's what this was part of. So this was one of the homes that was investigated. Um, now it's a really famous um, thing, and it's called a scandal because. Thatcher basically shut it down um, mid-investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the dossier that Theresa May lost. It's it's that. This is the same one. Right. Um, you know, and there was, I think there was about 120 homes being investigated. But this was the thing around the child abuse where I didn't get my head around it was because when the police were coming to interview me, they never once asked me about physical abuse. Mm-hmm. So... It was just set. so. Even then, the police in the eighties and nineties didn't see children being punched and kicked and bitten by adults as abuse. Yeah. Um, you know, so they were only asking this, about the sexual stuff. Do you know what I mean? So, so it never registered with me that I was being abused. I never even got even at that point. I never went. Oh shit! Where where other kids at the school realised they'd been abused because they were talking about the sexual stuff. Mm-hmm. They never raised the physical. So when they asked me the questions, and all my answers were, were no, because what I was going through wasn't what you were asking. And, you know, I'm 10 years old, 12 years old, so I'm just answering yes or no to what you're asking me. And they never asked me, have you been hit? Have you felt scared? Have you been beaten up? Mm-hmm. So it was to that, yeah. you know. So it, police, the police would have knew it. They did as well. They, they would have um to keep stuff like that out of it, just to kind of save herself a bit of work. I mean, a, a lot of yeah. your high-ranking police would be involved in this sort of abuse as well, yeah. and your yeah. government officials. So I, it, yeah, 
That's why. They, well, it would have been catastrophic for them, wouldn't it? If they'd have, if they'd have investigated, if they'd have said, to, you know, what I mean, like you said, if they'd have asked the real questions, like no one would have come out of it alive, as far as yeah. the higher ups. You know what I mean? Um, well, I think the irony of that is, is like even the public perception was not really aware of. Or not, I wouldn't say not where we were. I think we were, we were still coming out of um, a time in history where it's still quite appropriate to abuse children in the form of physical as a, as a, as a learning, you know, as a tool to yeah. teach people, you know, teach kids discipline. I think, you know I'm what I mean? So it's still very normal. I mean, I'm the same age as you. I can mind at school in primary one and primary two. Uh, mm. The, the teacher we had, she wouldn't let you go. Bear in mind, you're five and six year old, and um, she wouldn't let you go to the toilet and things like that. I, I mean, yeah. I, I can yeah. mind peeing myself like two or three times because I was yeah. scared to ask to go to the toilet and things like that. And she used to, um, she had a guitar, she used to pretend she was oh, okay. music, but see, if you were bad, she would hit you with the, the arm with the guitar, the neck of the guitar. So uh, there, was, there was stuff like that going on in schools, and this is it. But what you're saying, like public perception as well. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm saying the police were involved and the government were involved, but yeah, yeah, the, the media would have been involved as well. Yeah, of course. You look at the BBC and the Jimmy Savile stuff. We know how deep, you know, and even the accusations with Cliff Richard that his name's in. In yeah. you know, it go, you know, we only have to look at. The royal family right now you know and do, do, do you know what i'm saying like our, yeah. our monarchy are involved in child abuse do you know what i mean this is the world that you know where and someone mentioned someone was talking about this the other day because i think it was me my daughter-in-law she was saying about do you know why like loads of pedophiles are like multi-billionaires it's because they get to a stage where they can't experience anything else because they have all the money mm-hmm. so everything else becomes more taboo so that's why you see, you tend to find a lot of um, wealthier people who have access to most of the things in life that we wouldn't. You find a massive degree of paedophiles within that area because I'm not saying this is why. It was just a discussion we were having because it's the next taboo. It's the next. Well, I can have anything else I want, um, but that's that's another conversation for another day, isn't it? Because it just goes so deep. Yeah. But it makes. But sense, you know what you said. Mean- Disney. Yeah, but like you said about, you know, even you being stopped to go to the toilet, it was like, this was also normal for, like, the majority of children within the UK. You yeah. know, even on lower levels to my abuse, everyone, have kids, it was just normal. Yeah. And parents kind of didn't even, I think a lot of parents were scared to question that. I think they just accepted the um, status quo of life. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, that incident... That I was telling you about. I mean, there was another. Used to be, you put your hands up in the morning for packed lunches. How mm-hmm. many people were staying for packed lunch or school dinners? And if there was too many people, with too many hands went up, she would start shouting at people and say that the parents no care about you. They don't make these lunches and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I can mind, I can mind one day because my dad worked night shift and my mum, she worked during the day, so. I was watching the hands get up and I thought there's, there's too many hands. Yeah. So I kept my hand down yeah. and I'd take it home. 
I walked home at lunchtime with my pal, but I couldn't get in because I didn't have any way to get in. My dad was sleeping. I didn't want to uh, let him know. So I sat out on the step and my next door neighbour phoned my, my big sister and my big sister dragged me back down to the school and she went right through them. But my parents, they they done nothing about it. They, they didn't want to rock the boat. So, that's, I think that's what it is. I think that's what it is. I think we had a thing where that thing in the 80s, you know what I'm saying, about my dad's work, where there was a, a degree of comfortability compared to the abject poverty that he'd experienced after the war, you know, being a war baby. And I think a lot of people just kept their mouth shut because we were like, we've been, you know, this is, this is, this is okay, this, compared to yeah. what we've lived in before. Um, you rocked the boat. And I think as well, a lot of people trusted the establishment. I think they trust why, you know, I find, especially with the voting public, we still have a generation of people from that generation mm-hmm. who still can't fathom that a government would harm them or do bad to them or not to be trusted. Like, And I, and I get it. I understand it because I think a lot of people, like people can't fathom, why would they do that to us? We haven't done anything wrong. We're good people. They wouldn't treat us like that, would they? So I think you get a lot of that coming from um, that generation, but it's the same generation of, you know, the the the, fact, the dads that didn't talk, you know, the dads that didn't cry, you know, we, we don't talk about yeah. feelings, you know, the stiff upper lip. We're still, we're still, at, we were then where, you know, me and you growing up in that period, we're, we're living with parents who um, experienced that. Have you ever heard of um, a poet called Philip Larkin? Yeah. It's, this be the verse. Mm-hmm. Right, I'll send it to you later, but it starts, the F you up, your mum and dad. They did not mean to. They were effed up themselves by parents and fl- something about flat hats. And But it's talking yeah. about how parents from that generation pass on misery unintentionally. Yeah, well, yeah, I would, I would get that. Because I, I, I think <laughs> now, like, kind of our generation and onwards are kind of, trying to fight back and trying yeah. to make things right, but it'll take yeah, eight generations to kind of equal the scores. Yeah, I, I think I think the generation of kids that we have growing up now, you know, up until, you know, the early, the, the, you know, from kids to 1920, you know, I get to, fortunately, I get to experience a lot of these kids within the work that I'm doing because it's music and venues, and they feel like the kids, they were going to make the change to me. Yeah. I feel these are the kids who are going to change the country and change the world. You know, they are the kids that they don't care about the color of your skin, what you look like, if you're trans, if you're gay, if you're straight, if you're bi. They're the kids who care about a stranger. You know, the just the kids that I can be proud of. Do you know what I mean? I find this in you know, and obviously there's a lot of disillusionment with you know younger generations, and there's a lot of violence on the streets. But I find there is a generation of children at the moment really coming through. Is really empathetic. Yeah. Strong, you know, individuals. Um, so yeah, where were we up to? We were up to the abuse, weren't we? So yeah, I went through three of those schools, four of them, um, and every single one of them. There's an investigation in every single one. Um, the first one was the Welsh Children's Homes, and the second three weren't, but they still had. They were still massive investigations, and they were in the northwest of England and. They're both, they're both open now. The first one isn't, but the last two, um, both Catholic, they're run by 
um, a big Catholic organisation that I won't I won't name. Um, and they've, they've they've been through several scandals and they come out the other end. Um, that's just like another ballpark. Um, so like, I think between the first and the last one, the first one, the, the violence seemed, the seemed, it was me. Although the first one was where the violence started, it was the happiest I was throughout the whole period, and it was the last one that was the scariest. Because the last one, I'm 13 at the time, um, and I'm a gobby little. I've got a mouth on me. Do you know what I mean? You know, I, I basically got kicked out of four residential schools eventually. Now, I wore that as a badge of honour. Like to be sent to a naughty boys' school, right? And they kick you out of a naughty boys' school, mate. You know, because when I was coming on the weekends to Southport, all the other lads looked up to me because it was like, he gets kicked out of schools, him. And the girls thought it was hot, and it was, it was a badge of honour, do you know what I mean? Um, but the last one was the, the most brutal because that was just, there was no rhyme or reason for the violence there from adults. There was a guy called, I can't mention his name, um, but he was a rugby player for St. Helens part-time. And I remember fighting with my roommate. I'm 13. I've come out, you know, I'm 13. I'm probably five foot five, maybe eight stone, maybe seven and a half stone. And I remember coming out of my bedroom and he, he runs up. This guy had to be 21 stone and like six foot one or something. And I remember he hit me at the bathroom door and I landed in the bath. He hit me that hard. Um, yeah, he, he, you um, know, and I always felt. Eh? There's just absolutely no need in it. I mean, that I mean, that's not even restraining. Then that's just rattling somebody for the sake of it. But then, when I look back on it as well, I have to be. I have to look back on it and think maybe there was possibly degrees of racism with some of it as well. Do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. which is something I've not even thought about. But there's, you know, there's a possibility of that because this guy just. He, it was leading up to that moment. Like he he waited a long time to get me on on my own. Yeah, and I know that there'd been instances before. Do you know what I mean? Where he was and he couldn't do anything. Do you know what I mean? Um, but there was never no reason for him to dislike me. So, um, so yeah. So I got kicked out of them all, and I went back home to me. Did, did you just go back to to Lever, to Southport? Uh, to Southport, went back to my poor parents, and you know we grew in Southport at the time. We grew up basically Southport now is classed as Merseyside. That's where it's under the borough of Merseyside. Yeah. But back then it was Lancashire, um, and it's it's a really proud Lancasterian town as well. Really proud. Um, so they still maintain personally this Lancaster vibe, and we lived in this little village called Crossings, and it was magical. So. At this age, 13, I've gone back. Mum and dad can't deal with me. My black friend, Elliot, Elliot Collins from Barbados, his mum and dad say to my mum and dad, listen, we'll foster Billy and he can come and live with us. My mum and dad have just gone, yeah. And I went to go, I went to live with them. And I think I was with them from 13 to 15. And again, the freedom they offered me had been completely insane compared to what I'd always gone because my I'd been quite restricted with my parents it was back home at eight o'clock at night but yeah. you were kicked out of the house at eight in the morning um 
but you know, within two weeks of being with the Collinses, they were a mixed Bayesian family and just the love you felt in the house. It wasn't what I'd never felt this kind of energy or love or passion or culture identity or anything compared to what I was experiencing with this family and mm-hmm. the freedom I was given. But you know, I, I, I ran wild with it and abused it. Um, what was it? Because what, I, what, what was happening with your your brother at this time? Like, was your brother in there? He was still with them. He was still with them, and his experience was very different to mine. Um, although later on in life, he ended up very much mirroring everything that I did, you know, and becoming, you know, a young criminal and things, and right. involved in street crime and stuff. Um, and I think. There was definitely a part of he was academically very clever mm-hmm. where I was um artistically clever um so I, my art it, it was never nurtured with me where because we're, we're talking about of the time again as well aren't we where to be academically clever is PC it's normal that's all you know so he's yeah. getting all the bells and whistles isn't he um but it wasn't enough, I don't think, because I don't think either of us, even with the family of adopters, I don't think, I don't think they were capable of love. I, I honestly believe that. I don't think, I think they were capable of the idea of love, but they weren't. They're not capable of. And I find it's just they're just kids of that generation. You know, I think they thought it's like you know the people who they get, they get a dog at Christmas. And yeah. then the dog starts pissing all over the couches, and it's like all of a sudden, what do we do with this dog? Because that is not what we bought. It's very much what that was situation was. Um, and I don't hold any malice towards them. I don't. Um, I get it. I get that they're part of the generation that they came from, and you know, some people are deeper thinkers. Some people aren't deep thinkers. I don't think they've been able to think that deep. Um, but then I'm also aware as well that I might be blaming them for things that have become part of my reality that maybe might have been part of my imagination as well because it's been 20 odd years, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I don't hold much, you know, I'm thankful that they gave me the opportunity. Uh, it would have been nice if it had gone different. So my brother was still with them. Um, and what we both found is they'd never been able to have children. Really? But when we were, when I was about nine, my mum got pregnant and had our sister, our Joanne, and the whole dynamics, it just... yeah. Just completely like, like you, so like you could have Christmas right, and you get you get like a little CD player, and she'd get like a, a Wendy house in the back garden, mm. and a bike and a rocking horse, and you'd just be sat there going like, this it just doesn't add up even at like nine. Like why is she getting up? Do you know what I mean? Um, Mate, I've heard that I've heard that same story with another guy. I'll pass him on to you after. Really? Yeah, man. Pass him on to you after the podcast. It'd, it'd be good for your interview as well, but kind of the same sort of story and the same sort of upbringing. Mm. It's, it's bizarre because, like, you try and make excuses for them, mm-hmm. and that goes on for 40 years. Yeah. You know, until. Until you, it's until until you wake up, really, and kind of realize what's mm. going on in it. And, it's it's mm. only it's all the problems are locked up in your head, and it's only you that can. Yeah, yeah. because you know it's it's like you know I'm waking up to it now, but 
that's I've, that's that's took a tremendous amount of pain to have to experience to get to that stage, and now I'm very um. But you know, I said before, I don't feel any bad feelings towards them. I do. I'm I'm extremely fucking angry because I don't ex- I don't feel bad experiences for the choices they made. I can accept that they made them. It's the behaviour since. Yeah. Um, because in my head, right, it's like anyone could have adopted me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, but you adopted me and rejected me. It's like if you'd have left me alone, mate, things might have been better with someone else. Do you know what I mean? So. Yeah. Totally. You know, so it takes a long time to wake up to that. Um, yeah. But then the thing is as well, that, you know, is that waking up to it and also I think the only constructive way to do it is to do it in a in, in an unblaming way because if you sit there blaming people... Yeah, then you'll carry that hate around with you for... Yeah. Whatever. So, the, you know, what I'm trying to do at the moment along with therapy and stuff is to try and deconstruct it and... And to see the reality of it, of why people act this way and why these things sometimes happen and that people aren't to blame and that most people at any given time are trying to do the best that they can in any given situation. And a lot of us get it wrong. Um, and I think that goes on. And I'm not doing that for them. I'm doing it for me because it gives me freedom then. Yeah. Yeah, quite right. Mm. So I ended up with this family. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the other thing is, is I wasn't really going to get this deep with it, but it's like I've never told the story, and I think I think we do everyone a disservice, not yeah, because there's other people out there like that guy you mentioned who've experienced this kind of thing, and if it helps someone else, yeah, I mean, as long as you're gosh. comfortable talking, I, I mean, I'm quite happy, yeah, whatever, yeah. yeah, it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But that, I think that's the focus for me. You know, if it helps someone else who's just sat at home like that, experience who's been through that, and they can, they can realize from this that it's that they're not to blame. Do you know what I mean? That, that's enough in it. You know, I think that's one kind of commitment I made to myself with the music and all the stuff was all the damage that was done. If I just sat there and let it destroy me, they all win. Yeah. But, so you uh, change the game. I mean. Pushing on and like to into mm. your forties and you're kind of achieving something with your life, so yeah, and something which we'll, we'll get oh. into. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you moved in with this family, right? So I moved in with this family, and it was just, it was just magic. It, it was great, amazing, and um, the love, and I just, I, I just messed it up, I messed it, up. I'm well messed up. Some me and my friend Elliot, who's mum and dad got us some lads approached us with a big bag of ecstasy and said can you sell some of these and we're like yeah we can and i'd never taken drugs in my life up until that point this we must be 15 now and i think they gave us 500 um this is in like 1995 yeah and we sold them in like four days or something this these were retailing at the time between 12 and 18 quid for a pill. Yeah. So, but we weren't, we were, we sold them, but we weren't paying, we, 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 we weren't paying the guy. We were just, I don't know what we thought we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Christmas Eve, I think 1995, the front, me, his mum and dad are on holiday in Barbados and they've left me and Elliot, who I think Elliot's 16, I'm 15, they've left us with the house. 
load of lads have come in, kicked kicked their heads in, smashed the house up, and they've had to put me back in care. Um, got into a kid's home. I think I was there for four weeks until my 16th birthday, and literally on my 16th birthday, they came to my door in the children's home and said, social services have been in touch. Um, they're not willing to basically continue funding you. Um, there's not a care order in place. So a care order means that they have to care for a child to the age of 21. Um, they said they're not willing to put a care order in place. Um, so goodbye has the address to a bed and breakfast, and they'll pay that for seven months until you can claim Dole. Yeah, and I believe that was racist. I do believe it was racist. Um, Not from the children's, I believe, social services. um, Not racist as in the fact of that people were outwardly being racist, but the fact that statistically black children end up the ones with the least care, the least funding, and the least support, statistically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that the likes of me and my brother... No one was going to question that. If you said, you know, I'll give you an example. There was a kid that was living with Mark. Mark, who was my best friend, shares a birthday with me as well. Um, he was able to go home and, and spend time with his parents. He was adopted as well throughout this period. He was able to go home and spend time with his parents. Yeah, he had a care order until he's 21. Even now, he still goes and stays with his parents. He was white. Me at the time wasn't able to go and stay with my parents, but they kicked me out on my 16th birthday with no care order. It's just, I guess, man, it's just disgusting to do something like that. So that was that. Um, From then, I had no life skills, so I just hit the streets and just, I was feral. I was just doing what all the other kids were doing. Um, I moved to Liverpool, met a girl, and she became my son's mum. Um, this is age 16. Within six months, I'm in prison um, get, with a three-year prison sentence for street robbery. Um, and it was basically, I was really drunk. Um, and I just attacked a lad that was shouting at me on a train. He was, I can't remember what he was shouting, but it was just, you know, the normal, who you're looking at, who you're looking at. Yeah, and I attacked him, and I remember coming off the train, and there was police at the train, and I tried to hit one of the police with a bottle, and I fell over. My leg got—I fell on the bottle, I ended up with loads of stitches in my leg, I ended up in hospital, um, and then six months later, they gave me three years in prison for for street robbery. I think the lad said that I tried to take money off him, although it it hadn't been that situation; it'd just been a fight kind of thing. Yeah, that's um, mental again. No, there's no way that's three years in the jail for, for that. It was all it, it was the whole you know that six months before I was being protected by the law and the state as a vulnerable child, and six months later I'm classed as a responsible adult mm-hmm. now put in to the prison system. Um you know, and and with that that just created a cycle because it was very much the same as the children's homes that you'd got quite a vulnerable, quite a vulnerable, but kind of a really kind and caring lad, even though quite naughty, thrusting them in again into a situation and a system 
that was completely ravaged by young men who were elitist criminals to a degree. Do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. Yeah, I'm going from, you know, running into an off license and grabbing the ca- five cans of beer to being sharing a cell with a guy who strangled his mum with a PlayStation lead because she wouldn't insure him on his car on her car. That's literally <laughs> if you know what I mean? That's yeah. what you know. You know, and, and all that done to me, that was it was that system again. It was very much the same as the first kids zone that you just had to fight, you had to fight and fight and fight. So like I got the three years, but even with the three years, I think I served you were meant to serve half, but back then you could get extra days for bad behaviour. Uh-huh. And I think I, I think I served in the end. I think I served like twenty eight months or something when I should have served eighteen. Right. And the bad behaviour, which was most frustrating about it, was it wasn't bad behaviour. It was defending myself from attack usually. Um. You know, I remember watching the telly in the communal area once and some kid had been arguing with out the window. He's come behind me and he's put in the plugs in the sink. They used to have these big thick metal plugs, but how fat they were, steel plugs. You can pop them out with your plastic knife. Uh-huh. And this kid's put them in a sock, sat behind me watching telly. Because of an argument out the living room, he's, he's waited till I'm watching the telly. And he's jumped up and swung it behind me and he's hit me there. And I've ended up with like five, six stitches. So I've gone to the hospital, come back from the hospital. And then when I get back, it's called nicking. I get I get a nicking sheet. And I'm like, what have I been nicked for? And they're like fighting. And I'm like, they watched what happened. That's what you were dealing with. So it was like, even defending yourself, you were getting... Yeah, do you know what I mean? So, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. It doesn't matter what you do. You still get. Yeah, it's impossible. You know, it's it's part of that generation again. Of you know, the first one I went to was Stoke Heath YOI Young Offenders Institute. You know, and this is all these buildings. So Stoke Heath Hindley, with these on the north of Britain, Manchester and Wigan and Shropshire, they were all they were all still the Borstal buildings. Nothing had changed. They were still Borstal. They just weren't called Borstal anymore. The same buildings were the same ones that you'll see on the film Scum with Ray Winston. In. They're the same buildings. And 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 the patriarchy in there with, with the male staff is, is was still very much Borstal, although some new different government guidelines has come out. It was still very much a very secret world that wasn't being policed too well. So it was, although it wasn't Borstal, it was very much Borstal still. This, you know, we're talking 1997. Yeah, it's a um, different name. That's what it is. Yeah, do you know? And, you know, one of the things that, that throughout all this, so this went on, this, this prison journey through, you know, from 97 to 2000 and 2011. So from the age of 17 to the age of 31, I was in jail every few months. Um, and it was mainly alcohol related. Um, but I'd got to a stage where my coping mechanism was alcohol. Yeah. Um, to go with anxiety, I was having panic attacks. Um, and I was living this extreme life where I was, I was hanging on the peripheries of extreme with really big gangsters, but not being a really big gangster. 
but ending up in situations because it was like I was trying to climb this ladder to become this big gangster because I'd ended up in this lifestyle now where that was the ambition. Yeah. Um, and you must have felt kind of, did you feel kind of trapped in that world? Is that first name? I did because I wasn't, I wasn't made for it. I yeah. wasn't made for it. Um, you know, for some reason I made, I, I, I managed to maintain my humility. So I was very, I was still a very sensitive, deep and caring person. And, not understanding that about myself and then trying to be a bad man with real bad men, you know, was, was just terrifying because I was constantly terrified. You know, I was constantly suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, <clears throat> but there was so much about it that was attractive as well. Um, I think, you know, well, it is, it is to a lot of young men, isn't it? You know, you know, it's the money, you know, the status, and kind of the perception yeah. they what you look like to other people. Do you know what I mean? But it was definitely about definitely about fitting in as a, more than one trying to be a gangster. It was. Def, I think. I think. I think that's the case with most of them because you know what the the thing I found throughout the ten years or you know in and out of jail or whatever was like. 90% of the kids that I'd been in kids' homes with were in prison with me. Yeah. Like every every time I went to a new prison, you'd just end up bumping into five or six kids that had been nonced in the bedroom next to you when you were in a kids' home. And that was like, this is when I'm starting to wake up, when I'm starting to get switched on, when I'm starting to go, this what's going on? Is that even possible? You know, you see the statistics that, you know, and what was happening was... was I was either seeing kids that I'd been in kids' home with commit suicide, become heroin addicts, um, end up in jail for a murder, or, you know, and these were all, but they were all related to childhood trauma, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But literally 90% of the kids that I was in kids' home with were bumped into in prison. And yeah. that shows you the system's failing. Yeah, but that's what it was. It was a cycle because if there's all that abuse going on, they don't want that getting out. So, they would rather use it all kind of drugged up Scumbags. and locked up in jail so that you can't yeah. tell your story. And if you do tell your story, nobody's going to believe it. Yeah, right. So you are as a criminal. That's the way you'll be seen by the, by the authorities. I think the thing is with that, though, is if you walked into a prison today, you're going to see exactly the same thing. It hasn't changed. Yeah. The system is very much still the same. You know, uh, and like, I don't know how how you change that. You know, if you look at the British prison system, I can't remember the exact statistics, but it's something insane, like 78% of people in prison suffer from addiction issues or mental health issues. Yeah. Over 70%. Basically, what it's saying is the people, over 70% of the people that are in prison should be in hospital. Mm-hmm. That's the reality, um, but it's you know it's a profitable business incarceration to governments. Yeah. It's one of the biggest free labour forces in the country. Do you know what I mean in the world? Um, what um, what prisons were you in? Was this all in the English prison system? So yeah, so the English prison system. So it started off. I think the first one was. 1997, Lancaster Farms on remand. 
Then I went to Alt Course, which had just opened in Liverpool. This is all in the same sentence. Then I went to Hinley. Then I went to Stokeith. Then I went to Guy's Marsh and Dorset. Then I went to Moorlands. I think I got out of Moorlands and Doncaster. It was six prisons in 28 months in, in that three-year sentence one. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it is because you don't have time to... You know, how are you meant to rehabilitate yourself when you're moving? You know, you don't have time to get on any courses, you yeah. know, any educational things, you know, to build friendships, to build stability, and you know, or to even get a care plan together with your probation officer, you know, because you're waking up in a new prison. But again, at the time, I was one of very few prisoners who were being shifted around that much because of behaviour. Yeah. Um, and again, when I look at it, it's classic ADHD, my behavior at the time. But it was, he's a naughty kid. But I played up to it massively because it gave me status. You know, it made me feel I was a someone, you know, when other kids are like, there's my dad, whatever his name is. He's just been kicked out of this jail. You know, you you know, you know, got a bit of uh, notoriety from it. Right. So, you know, so it became like a drug doing that. So, like, see how you've been going on about the ADHD? Have you, mm. Are you diagnosed with that now? I'm diagnosed with bipolar disorder now um, and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. Uh, yeah. Which is related to childhood. Is there any medication around for that? This is all, well, yeah, I've been on medication on for years, but this is all kind of like a brand new, so... The, the bipolar one's quite a new diagnosis. Oh, no, sorry. The bipolar one's a 10-year-old diagnosis. Um, and about three weeks ago, I was re-diagnosed with the complex um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is basically they, they believe that all the other diagnoses are possibly wrong. Right. And I've been suffering this post-traumatic stress disorder since childhood, and that it's all a result of childhood trauma. Um so I'm just about to start a new medication program with that, and then with stability, they want to start like intensive counselling and things. And so that's all of a bit of a yeah whirlwind at the moment because oh. it sort of got to a stage where like you went, you it's proven that I wasn't bad that all my responses were directly responding to the abuse as a child. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well. So, yeah, I went through that whole prison thing. Um, I got out and I carried on doing the whole drinking and drugging. And, you know, none of my crimes were major crimes. I was just, I was always smart enough to hang around on the periphery. And most of it was alcohol related, you know, getting into a fight with someone else and them coming off worse than me. Or, you know, after the initial robbery thing, I never did anything as serious as that again. Although I hung around with extremely serious people. Um uh-huh. I ended up moving to Ibiza when I was 25, and I was there for a year selling drugs in Ibiza, and that kind of like went extremely wrong. Um, so then I went to Marbella uh, to try and sort my life out, and that more or less happened exactly the same uh, to the stage where I was kidnapped, and you know I had to dig my own grave and things, and Jesus. that got yeah. That's why a lot of this stuff's extreme, but then when I look at what we've been talking about, we could talk for 10 hours about it, do you know what I mean? So it's like, but that's pretty much the scope of it. So I came back from that, 
uh-huh. and this is sort of where the journey got better you know so i came back from the ibiza thing 2005 i think 2006 and i was in a flat in southport and literally it got to a stage where like every time i used to get out of prison or come back from somewhere my mates would be there but you know as you got older to be a little less few mates and then the next time you come back and all of a sudden you're coming back and there's not even one mate left Mm. and they've all settled down and no one's letting you sleep on the couch and i remember this girl let me use a flat and i remember writing myself a note and i said you'll live and die in this town Uh, and it's a song by um what are they bloody called now i'll come back to the name of the band the enemy, yeah, okay, yeah. right, yeah. So that album was out at the time. Like, what, was it, what was the album called? Um, yeah, so it was that. They should know it. Was it, called, it. Was it called This Town or something like that, was it? Yeah, I, it might it might even be the, the same name as uh, the lyrics you said. I can, I yeah, yeah. I need to edit this back. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was an enemy lyric. It was a song by the enemy. And I was like, because I'd watched it happen to so many people in that town. You know, it, it's it's... It's the, it's the classic story of the Victorian seaside resort. You know, it, all it does is have bed sits with heroin addicts and alcoholics in it. Yeah. Um, so I literally got an ounce of cocaine off my mate, sold it, and moved to Liverpool um, into a man's hostel in 2006. I was in my 26. Um, I'd been a music teacher when I'd been in Walton Prison. on Because when I came back from Ibiza, actually, I'd end up in Walton Prison for sitting in the car. Uh-huh. And there'd been a, a music teacher called Delia who said, when you get out, if you want to do music, come and see me. So I came and seen her when I got out, and she gave me a reference and got me into music college. Um, so then I spent three years in music college between 2006-2009 um, studying music performance and music programming, like um, logic and mixing and stuff like that. Um, and basically, for the next few years, just floated around in bands locally. Um, most of the stuff I was doing was acoustically with my own stuff. Um, I released, I think, about eight singles and one album under my own name. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was never really like, I was very much... Acoustic, right? An acoustic artist—it's a hard—it's a hard job to do. You know, look how many acoustic artists are in the charts. It's just—it's yeah. unviable. You know, and and after a long time of doing that, it sort of got to a stage where some lad I knew had a music studio, and he was like, "We've got this studio for people who suffer from addiction and mental health issues and stuff. Do you want to come down and spend some time there?" I was like, "Yeah, it's, you know, it's National Lottery funded." And then over a course of like four years or something, I ended up becoming a director of the music studio and teaching music to vulnerable adults, people in addiction, people with mental health issues. And that sort of took me up to 2016. It just shows you how quickly, though, you can, your life can turn. I think, to be honest, though, it feels. It still feels pretty much messed up, but I think there's, I think a lot of us maybe get it, you know, you know, as we grow up and we get older, I think a lot of us get to that stage where like, if I'd have known what I know now, how prolific I could have been when I was younger. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because we're figuring it out for the first 39 years. Well, like, I mean, going back to that, like, see, like, the music that, like, that album is, that, that's the name of that mm-hmm. album, We'll Live and Die in These Towns, that's the name of the album. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, I've still got the letter somewhere as well, you know. So, like, what sort of music were you into? Was it... Were you always into kind of guitar-based music? What were you into when you were young? My proper love for music started off when I must have been about 12. I don't know if I was younger, actually, and it was um, Appetites of Destruction, uh, Enter Sandman, Metallica. Um, and then there was like that really like um, Rat Pack rave scene as well. So, like... There was a lot of like happy hardcore stuff going on, but it, but it was definitely, I yeah. think, you know, and Meatloaf, you know, at the time, it was like, but I held that album had just come out, you know, and there was yeah. about five of us kids who who were like really, really obsessive over that, but like White Snake as well and Alice Cooper. And but then, but that was so not normal as well for the kids I was hanging around with. Like, so I was sort of, it was the first sort of like, um, break out into my individuality, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but then that sort of disappeared around 15 with the rave scene and, and the ecstasy. Yeah. So it became all the drugs, all the, all of that madness and that. And, and that was that pretty much until about 2002. Um, and then it all sort of changed then with loads of mad music that I probably even wouldn't even listen to now, but some cool stuff like Newton Faulkner, um, the enemy, the early um, Kings of Leon stuff, all the early Libertine stuff, um, but then even mixing that with like R and B, like Usher and things. Because for me, music had always kind of been: if a song turns me on, it turns me on. I'm not. Pre- I wasn't like specifically bothered about what yeah. genre it was. Yeah, yeah, just music. Do you know what I mean? But it's definitely rock had always kind of it probably it it was that it's that tribal thing. It just felt really tribal and really like Neolithic, you know, the, the drums and the guitars and but yeah, the, but that, that you know that would my you know I'd, I'd had a, you know I'd had a passion for drums and guitars from a very young age, but you could never sit me down long enough yeah to learn these things as a kid. But then that came back through a bit of nurturing through the jail thing. So I was pretty much from like 23 to even now, you know, indie rock kind of stuff. Right. You know, I have, like, I think I have a bit of that, especially because of the scene that I'm in is like, I fall for a lot of mainstream stuff. I do. Mm. Like, I like, I, you know, I'm not pretty, I'm not like, you know, when people talk about these dead, like deep iconic songs from these really obscure bands, I'm just like, it goes over my head. I'm like, I listen to Kings of Leon, me or Manic Street Preachers. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, you know, Manic for it's hard, isn't it? I mean, you got a lot of people that that um, they try and make it. They're into the obscure bands, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I'm pretty much the same. I can go to a certain level, but some it just yeah. uh, some it washes over me as well. I think it's, is it is it is it is it is it just because people are trying to be snobby, or do you think we're just on a different music journey? I, I think that uh, there's a certain extent it's snobbiness, and then there's a. I kind of find like my pals that, that are in bands, or they know mm-hmm. they seem to know they made obscure bands. 
because they, they kind of, I don't know if they've just got an, an ear for the music or whatever, but I mean, some of it, like artists, some music's just noise at times as well. Isn't yeah, it? definitely, definitely. But doesn't it, like for me, like music, it, it all depends on what mood I'm in, where I'm at emotionally. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, like, I, I, like, there you go. You know, yeah, I can go listening from. So, like, the mo- the music that I get the most, like, so- what soothes me the most is really hard rock, right. really heavy rock music, you know, like Biffy Clyro or something. Um, that's kind of music that I feel really peaceful at. But then I'll listen to, like, like singers from the 1930s as well. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I like Al Bowley or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I went. Yeah, go on. I, I, I've been listening the last couple of days. I've been listening to Miles Kane. He's he does like yeah, he's a dude though. He's, he's, he's a listen on Spotify, and it's got all sorts of stuff. And the missus caught me listening to the day, and she's like, "What the hell is that?" Like, there's like yeah. uh, Diana Ross, and goes for Diana Ross to Kano. To, yeah, that's um, exactly the same. Uh, so it, exactly the same. But that's the thing you can like music's music, can it? You can like whatever you like. And I think like when you have a collective when you have a collective taste in music, like my music's a journey, you know what I mean? So if my if I put my playlist on, I'm going on this big journey, you know what I mean? This big epic journey. It's like like why limit yourself, do you know what I mean? Like when you can have this big massive journey yeah. with different genres, do you know what I mean? So you know what I'm listening to. Some even now, like um, at the moment, I'm listening to a lot of clean cut kid mm-hmm. who are in, like a Liverpool band. Um, very quite obscure, and um, they were signed to a major, but then they walked away from the major because they found that they were really limited in what they were able to do with the major. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that, I'm listening to I thought Kanye West on there, where I've only start, I only listened the first time I listened to Kanye West was during lockdown. Right. So I've changed, you know what I mean? Like, well, that's just a hang as well. Lockdown, lockdown's been good for just being able to kind of rediscover stuff that yeah. you might know you heard at the time. Cause, I mean, it's I, the playlists that get you, isn't it? Like, those yeah. playlists. Because you end up listening to stuff that you're like, I, never have, I could never have ever even thought of finding that song, and all of a sudden it says, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, when the, um, so obviously you, you were doing this at the recording studio. Mm. Um, when did uh, photography come into that? It sort of came off the back of the recording studio because, you know, it's the recording studio. I sort of done my first album there for myself. It's still on Spotify, actually, um, under my birth name because my birth name's not Billy Rich. Um, my birth name is Owen Reed. Right. Um but then when I was adopted, they changed it to Owen Allen. Uh-huh. Um, and Billy Vitch literally translates to son of Billy. Um, a few years ago, I was doing a genealogy search, and I found that my biological family had a Polish shoe cobbler three generations ago, and his last name was Vitch. Vitch means son of. Right. The guy who adopted me is called Billy, so Billy Vitch is son of Billy. Basically, that's what it translates to. Um, so, yeah, I've done this first album. And then the album, when I look back on it, 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 the album was literally just a self, 
it was all the stuff that I built up from the age of seven. So then I didn't really have anything to write about after I'd released that album, do you know what I mean? But although I, I never wrote the album with that intention, it was only after I'd written it that I was like, oh, wow, you've just written about your first 35 years on the planet, haven't you, really? Yeah. Um. So we were still hanging around the studio thing, and what sort of happened with the studio was we'd both, you know, we may only really founded it because he wanted to help people and it was getting complicated. We were getting, you know, we were having complaints from clients, um, just silly things like they might want to cover a song and then we wouldn't let them cover it because it was legally impossible to do a cover of, but because this person had severe mental illness or health, they couldn't understand that they, they weren't allowed to do it. So they'd put a complaint in against you. So we were having to struggle with all these safeguarding issues and, we were just two musicians trying to run a studio. We weren't prepared for it all. So in the end, we ended up folding the studio because it became it became unenjoyable, do you know what I mean? Um, so Dan, uh, who's still a good friend who had the studio, he, because he had a studio, he used to get a lot of delegate passes, so press passes for venues and shows and things. And he said, this must have been like beginning of 2009, it was for Sound City in Liverpool. So Sound City is quite—it's quite a famous music festival, to be honest, for the for the it's size a, of it. Yeah. It's a festival that does kind of run all the different venues in Liverpool, isn't it? It does now, yeah. But it used to be originally it was just focused on Bramley Moor Dock, right. um, which I preferred because it was like a real proper festival. Do you know what I mean? Um, and now it's it's probably over about thirty-seven venues or something. And in all honesty, that is the best approach you could probably have because we can keep it grassroots and everyone's getting paid, but I still look at festivals and think, I like a festival in one location, personally. Yeah, I mean, um, I've, not, I've never been to anything like that. Like, there's, I think there's, you get the one in Camden, Camden Rock, so it's the same mm-hmm. sort of thing in it, and then there's there's one up here in Glasgow, Tenement Trail, yeah. which is the same thing, but no, I've never kind of, experienced any of the things at Disney. It's good. It's just, it's just a pain in the ass. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because, you, know, you know, every venue you go into, if so, you know, imagine if you were younger, if you're a younger person, every time you go into a different venue, they want to see identification, you know, you've got to show your tickets here and there, and yeah. you miss stage times a lot and things as well, and I can only imagine, like, what it must take to actually put that together, do you know? Um, it's a monumental feat, really. So it's an amazing thing for the city, but I still get the vibe that even a lot of people who go to prefer the all under one roof. Yeah. Thing. That's why we have supermarkets, isn't it, really? Do you know what I mean? We, we, you know, we're creatures of habit, you know? <laughs> um, so my mate got these tickets, and he said, we, I've got photography passes to go and do this. I was like, we're not photographers, are we? And we're like... So, so we Googled it, you know, what to do as a photographer. So we just went and bought like these little hundred pound cameras and thought, you know, I used to take pretty decent pictures on my phone. It would be sound. So you went with these little hundred pound cameras and these little hundred pound cameras are just, they're all right outside, but a lot of music photography is based in low light. Um, and when I got home, the photos were, they were impossible to see. There was nothing you could do with them. And I was like, it was, I've been one of those people all my life, me, who, if you say I can't do something, 
it's like I see that as like a challenge. It's like who 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 are you talking to? All right, watch watch what I do now. Do you know what I mean? And that was exactly the same with the, with that situation. Um, I was fortunate to have a little bit of money saved up, and I went round some local photographers that I knew and asked what to buy. I spent a few grand on equipment, googled the hell out of it, and then started sending messages to local venues and local bands saying, can I just come and take photographs of you at your show? And I don't think anyone ever said no. So they just, I just focused, literally. It happened really quick. I focused for about six months just on local bands. And then I sent some photos to a local magazine. I said, can I come and shoot shows for you? And they were like, yeah, of course you can. But, you know, you've got to put the legwork in and, a lot of people come thinking they're going to be shooting major shows and you can't just do, you know, you've got to take the rough with the smooth and do the small stuff first. And I was like, yeah, just the opportunity. It'd be amazing. And, you know, I think within six months, I was booked to do Paul Weller or something because me photographs. That's brilliant. Like, I, I'm not even going to say I'm good, do you know what I mean? Because I think that's a bit of pretentious, do you know what I mean? But whoever was looking at me photographs thought that my work was good enough and, you know, and, so before lockdown, I think, who did I even shoot before lockdown? I've done bigger since, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But before the lockdown, I, I think I was booked to do Kano, Paul Weller. But most of the stuff was still big local bands. And, you know, my passion still the big local local bands, to be honest. Um, but then during lockdown, when this had sort of taken off, I'd got to a stage where I was getting booked by local bands just because they were staying with stuff in the magazine. Right. So we were starting to start making connections. Um, and the first one was with a, a local band. It was absolutely amazing, called uh, Rats. Yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, Joe Maddox is the, is the front man. And they're with, um, you've heard of This Feeling? Uh-huh. It's like a promotion company. So I think they're signed with This Feeling. And then they were like, can you do our photography? So I started doing their photography and then they booked a small tour of Sweden. They were going to get me on that and then the lockdown came and like literally everything for everyone, you know, everyone, everything that everyone had tried to achieve, it literally just fell away overnight. Um, a year into the lockdown, the magazine that I'd been shooting for folded they didn't have any way for people to go out shooting anymore. They do. I think they've been doing it for 13 years, and I think it's one of those industries where I think you're just constantly getting hit with stuff. Yeah. So I think after 13 years, and then like this lockdown comes, I think they just went, yeah, let's just yeah, call it a day. Just did enough. Yeah. So that was sort of like how it led up. Um, yeah, there was a bit. There was a few things I wanted to add as well about the reason for the photography because it was sort of mental health. The reason. Uh huh. So yeah, like kind of um, I was at um. Do you, have you heard of a Carla? Say that again. A Carla, A K A L A. The rapper. That's Dynamite. Dynamite, little brother. Yeah. Yeah. I was at a show of his, and um, there was a girl in front of me taking photographs. She was in the pit. And it was, it was around the same time as this other thing that I did the thing. And I remember saying to her, how did you get into this? 
and she went, send me a message or sent her a message because I'm quite an introverted person, although socially, like you're on my social media, I don't know how much you see, but socially it looks like I'm a really outgoing, loud, outspoken, extroverted person. Um, but so much of that's a performance. Right. On, on a real genuine, deeper level. I like to spend a lot of time on my own. I like to ponder and I like to I like the quiet things, do you know what I mean? So it was like when I've asked her this, what I was looking at when she was doing it, it was like it looked to me like she was just in a bubble mm-hmm. and no one could touch her and she's just there doing these photographs and I was like, How amazing would that be? Bands that you go to go you pay to go and see to take photographs of them and just the idea of it was just it was kind of very spellbound. It was magical. That's what it was. It was sort of like a magical idea. Um, so obviously when I did get into it and she spoke to me and told me who to get in touch with Breathe Magazine and stuff, it created that for me because of the severe mental health issues I'd you know, had ongoing you know, through the 10 years, you know, the bipolar, um, the borderline personality and the agoraphobia and the anxiety disorders. Um, these were all disorders that, I was heavily medicating myself through alcohol and drugs. Um, you know, throughout the whole drug situation, there'd been heroin dependency. Um, that was probably last 2010, 2011. Um, and I was, then I was on Subitex and methadone for a year. Right. Separately to come off that. Um, but then the main ones after that was like, it was cocaine and alcohol. Um, like the, I think every, I think, I, I, I don't think it ever matters how much anyone takes. I think it's why you're taking it uh, and what, yeah. and what becomes of you when you take it. Um, you know, and it got to that, and it was all that stuff that I was trying to heal. Um, so what happened when I started doing the photography was it felt like, it felt like a coat of armor in social situations, I had this camera in my hand and 99% of the time in a venue, no one even sees you. When, they, I think people just, he's doing a job, leave him alone. Yeah. So it felt like I was just able to float around these venues in this bubble of this, like an invisible cloak even maybe. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds quite childish, that, but I think we're all kids deep, deep, deep down. You know, um, and it made me feel safe because I suffer from anxiety and stuff. So for those two years prior to the lockdown and being in venues, I basically stopped drinking and I stopped taking drugs. And for two years, I was in a bar or a club or a venue nearly every single night and didn't touch alcohol or drink once you because know, I'd found that, a purpose. That was going to be one of my questions later on as well, was <laughs> obviously because I knew about your addictions and... That was going to be one of how how do you cope yeah. in these situations? That that's I mean it's very different now. I'm not. Co- I wouldn't say I was coping now. Right. Um, so what? So basically, right, leading up to that, I'd been doing. You know, I'd been to rehab several times. Um, I'd been in hospital psych ward several times throughout the last twenty years. Um, and through those two years, it was the first time. It was the longest I'd maintained sobriety without going to Alcoholics Anonymous or anything. It was photography, and it, it taught me 
that if you if you it was it 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 was filling that hole because you know addiction and alcoholism to me um, are people trying to fill a void inside themselves. You know that's my own personal feelings of it, and it's an unfillable hole because it's a hole that was. We don't know why the hole's there because you know it's all this stuff from childhood. So to find you'll never fill it in with the, with the. So you try and do all these things, and the photography was the first time that I found something that that actually filled it. You know, um, and I was I was very happy. And as I said, it blew my mind that I was in venues and bars and pubs every night for two years and didn't drink. But it's because I was there with purpose. Yeah. You know. Um lockdown came and it absolutely annihilated me mentally emotionally um you know i probably went i probably it probably undone 10 10 years of work that i'd done on myself um mm-hmm. and i think anyone listening can actually relate to that i don't think you have to be dealing with mental health issues um to actually have experienced that through this lockdown. Uh, you know, there's so many people trained for years and years and years to do so many different things um, and to just literally have it all stripped away, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't just a lockdown, was it? It, it destroyed so much, you know, it, dest- it destroyed my credit rating because yeah. I haven't been able to keep up with the bills um, and the impact of that has impacted other stuff, um, equality of life. Um living on my own um it affected me ability to drive because i had to have medicals every so often to, to drive but i couldn't have a medical because of the doctors um and it was i don't know like how did you feel with the lockdown for me it felt like this was although there was seven billion people on the planet experiencing exactly the same thing it felt like to me it was only me experiencing it that it felt like it was only my world falling apart that's what it felt like. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I mean, I've already experienced it definitely. I, I'm a postman, so no, okay. um, there wasn't so much a lockdown for us. We were just, we mm. just still to go and do our work. Um, but obviously, it takes an effect on other aspects of life. Obviously, the kids been off school, so you're having to, all of a sudden, you're a teacher and yeah. things like that. So, but it's like stolen time as well, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's time you're never going to get back, is it? Yeah, and I mean it's still, I mean it's still the same. It's still kind of going on. Yeah. Even like course, the isolation yeah. rules and things like that. My my friend um, had to isolate for ten days because he he got it just at Christmas time, and then he'd been out of isolation about a week and a half, and then his wee boys got it, and he's to isolate again. So. I mean, I think he's kind of in the same boat where he thinks it's it's never ending. So it's. I think it's, it's the fact that there's nothing able to plan, is it? Because we all live. I think we live for the experiences that we enjoy, don't we? Things to look forward to. You yeah. know? I um, mean, that's how as well. Like, I kind of. In between. Is it September ish? Kind of. Uh, August, September, we started getting gigs back, and I was. I must have been to like nine or ten gigs between then and Christmas, and then it's kind of it's all went again. So, like, see, I I, I kind of felt like 
I mentioned it to someone the other day. So I've got a friend who's got an events company in Liverpool called Evol, mm-hmm. which um, put on some of the yeah, biggest major deal. shows. Anything major that goes on, they're doing a lot of the major shows, like um, the Charlatans was, I think, was the last one, or no, right. sorry, it was, um, what's his name, Jarvis Cocker. Right. So I was talking to the guy who has that, um, Revo, and this kid's done, you know, basically Revo started off working for O2, um, you know, the venue. Um, and started, you know, over 13 years building his own events company. And the, what he's done for, like, the underground scene in the city is, I don't think you could ever thank him enough, do you know what I mean, for what he's been able to do. So I was talking to him about it the other week, and I was mentioning, like, when all the shows came back, it, I, all that stuff that, you know, as I said, I was doing all that stuff and it was helping me mental health. When all the stuff came back, it didn't. And I started drinking again. So mm-hmm. I got to a stage where I couldn't even do a show without drinking. And he was like, well, why is that? And I said, because it didn't feel like we got anything back. It just felt like it's all going to go in the blink of an eye. It, it, we haven't got it. It's not here again. It's This is just... Yeah. So trying to, do you know what I mean? So trying yeah, to like. That's why people were trying to fit in so many shows because we weren't really sure when it was mm-hmm. going to take it away again. So I, I can understand that. What did I have the other week? Um, Wolf Wolf Alice. Mm-hmm. So Wolf Alice were meant to play Liverpool the other week. And I think this week. And I messaged them and they said, they said back straight away, so we've had to cancel. And they didn't say the reason why they cancelled. But it's pretty apparent from what I've been experiencing, and the it's just how the infrastructure works with the whole music thing. Is it's just it's not cost effective. You know, if if one person in a band of you know eight people cancels, and they're on tour, and they're a pretty major local you know UK band, people think that these bands that are touring the UK, like these up and comers like Wolf Alice and things, and they haven't got vast pots of money. There's not a vast. Yeah. You know I mean, a lot of bands don't even break even. The same thing. You know, and then you've got yeah. a crew of twenty people. Yeah, it's destroying the industry. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it happened with the the snuts the other week as well. Yeah, the snuts, mate. I'm glad you mentioned them. What are the, the what's the last song called? The last song you released? Glasgow. No, oh, the no, last they, song. Oh, the... they done burn the empire. That just came out just in November. Before that, go on, what are you saying anyway? I'll take, yeah, I'll well, find the song. Uh, well, that happened with them as well just the other week. They obviously they had rescheduled dates for uh, right. August, September time, and then they announced they announced last week or the week before that they had to cancel them. But just what you're saying, because yeah. if one of them or one of the touring party gets corona, then it, the full tour's off. And, and those kids have got no money. Yeah, right. the venues still need to, the venues, um, they can't book these bands if they're not going to play. Uh-huh. And like that. So, but the, the hard time for that is that the fans don't understand it. And then the bands end up taking so much abuse online and it's not their fault. Mm. They're having to protect their own lives as well and their own lives. I do, I, I do though. And I don't know if it's because I work, because I work in the industry. Like, I, I get, I can understand why fans can and do get upset and that, but and I think because like people who don't work in the industry do look at that and think if you've got 
you know, half a million streams on Spotify and you're touring the country, you must be loaded. And they don't get that, like, because of how the industry works now. Some of these kids are are earning less than someone working a nine-to-five job. Mm-hmm. Although the man isn't to live their dream at the moment, you know, uh, Elbow were a classic band for it. I think it took them ten years to cut to cut even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think is the money now is made. Most of the money is made on live shows. You yeah, know, merchandise and stuff. Hardly any money made for selling albums because it all goes on Spotify and people stream it and they get. Um, Spotify is amazing for building an audience, um, but it's terrible for paying your artists. Yeah. Um, there's been, you know, there's been massive artists like Madonna and people like that actually like show what their streaming revenue is, and it's absolutely pennies for. But it's like this whole thing of you know the child abuse system and the care system. It's like Spotify has become this system again. It's like how do we break it? Because in loads of ways, it works really well. Yeah, and another way it's it's um, so yeah, you know, going back to gigs was hard. So, what basically happened um, was the magazine I was shooting for completely folded during lockdown, um, and it was heartbreaking for me because, like, before lockdown, I was I think before lockdown, I'd been booked to do. Paul Weller, Bob Geldof, Boomtown Rats, um, Beverly Knight, um, Red Room Club. uh, It's funny your mind goes blank, doesn't it, when you're doing this stuff? Kano, um, Cortinas. Right. And literally, in the blink of an eye, it's gone. Yeah. yeah, you know. So it was like, I think I had three grand left in the bank, and I was sat there, and I was like, "How, how do, how do photographers get into music venues?" Google. Most photographers get into music venues by being with a publication. So I said. Use your three grand and make a publication. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing idea at the time. So I was like, yeah, okay, I'll to do this. And fortunately, just because I, I've, Liverpool is so such a small city, it's such a, it, it's so small. It's very like a village, uh-huh. um, and it's and it's like a village that if you're a decent person and not a piece of crap to people. People really rally around you and really want to see people do well. So when you start putting things on social media saying, does anyone know anyone who can do this and who can do that? Most people do jump forward and offer the services um, because we seem to be a city of people who want to see people succeed, especially within the arts. So when I put that out there about wanting to create this magazine, a few people came forward and I found an amazing um, web designer called Chris Cashin. Um, now, this the website probably would have something on what we managed to achieve. I think it cost about twenty grand, and we done it. We done it for about three because he was doing favors. Um, and the magazine's idea is because 
everything that I'd sort of been through as a photographer, because that's all I still am. I'm only doing this so I can shoot. <laughs> but now I have to be an editor and I have to be a writer and I have to, do you know what I mean? Um, and it's funny because within in school, like, there's no way that I would ever have became a writer. No, not the worst thing you could ever choose. It's like, you know, um, it's like asking you to do, asking you to go and work is your phobia. You're the thing you hate the most. Yeah. Go, go and do that. And now I've actually ended up doing it. Um, so when we kind of set it up, it was kind of initially so we could keep me and a few other really talented photographers like Warren Miller, um, Jasmine Sinclair and Kevin Barrett being able to access venues to do shows when shows came back. Um, and then as the ideas grew, the idea sort of came about where I was aware, looking at my background and everything that me and you spoken about tonight was when I walk into a music venue to take photographs, why isn't there no like young black men? Why isn't there no young black girls? Why wasn't there any trans or gay or non-binary young people why wasn't there any white kids from extremely impoverished backgrounds in the fucking adidas tracksuits and the nike air trainers to take taking photographs and it wasn't because that these kids didn't exist it was because i believed the platform and the, and the ways into the industry are, are not being provided for kids from these backgrounds mm-hmm. um so i came away from that was I wanted to I wanted to build a platform where I could eventually become a CIC company, which we've just registered for now, is to start training young people from disfranchised communities. So when I say disfranchised, you know, it covers a wide spectrum and it covers a spectrum basically from anything from mental health to body dysmorphia to white impoverished kids to kids with ADHD to black impoverished kids to Asian kids to trans kids ways into this industry to actually start building careers as writers as photographers with the training Uh and with the you know when we when we publish an article they're crediting the articles so when they want to go to channel five or or the daily telegraph or anything five years time they've got evidential proof that they've been working as a journalist for the last five years um and that's sort of where we, you know, I haven't even released that information publicly. So how how is um, obviously like if you're saying that you're training them and putting them through all that stuff, um, have you got somebody helping you with the writing training them for that? Yeah. That- so basically, the idea was I needed several directors involved. Um, And one of the directors who's come on board is James McKinley, who is the CEO of Liverpool Live TV. Uh Um, And they're going to provide a lot of the training and a lot of the training support within this. Um, It only happens when you get your funding sources, but you have to become a CIC to get your funding sources. Um, There's several colleges who've expressed interest in putting young photographers through the magazine as well um and yeah initially it was all pipe dream stuff and this stuff hasn't really been made public um but we're at the stage now where as soon as we get the certificates through the post it happens and you know again for me 
like this is like absolutely terrifying like because I wasn't meant to, I wasn't <laughs> I just wanted to go out and take some photographs because I had anxiety do you know what I mean but then there's that little thing keeps it like, kicking off inside me who's like that thing we mentioned before about you know being the underdog and 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 seeing other underdogs and and thinking I don't know. I don't know how you. You probably feel the same as me, but I don't think there's nothing more inspiring than seeing an underdog achieve yeah. something. Like I think it's a big f off to the government and the powers that be. Yeah, so when I can get a kid, they want to see you fail. So for that, that that's your reasoning for. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to succeed. Well, but so when I can get a 16 year old kid right, who's just been selling heroin on the street, and six months later, right, he's shooting Paul Weller yeah. in the Olympia. That to me is like f off to you guys. Watch what we can do as a city. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I'm terrified. Um, but I'm it must, I'm I mean, it must give you a buzz as well. Like once you see it, it is because it's that thing, it. isn't it? It's that, yeah. it's that it's that f off, but it's it's also again that. That, you know, that human thing of feeling inadequate, not feeling good enough, knowing that there's a lot of people who will do want to see you fail and that there will be people out there who will try to do things to make you fail. Um, but then I also believe deep, deep down as well that if you, if you keep on doing the right thing, I don't, think I don't think there's anything anyone can do against, you know, if you try and do the right thing and you're transparent, I think that always succeeds in the end. No, I'm only trying to change one life. You know, if I can change, if I can help change one, one teenager's life, and but, you know, I if mean, you look at my story, I, I, you know, and if I can implement a fact where that a kid that came through what I I went through does have someone there when they're 16 who could imagine if someone done this to me when I was 16, what could what I could have been by now? Do you know what I mean? And, That's uh, the motivation. But you're saying you you only want to change one one life, but even if you did only change one life and then that person goes and helps change somebody else's yeah. life yeah. and then yeah. that's not going to fit. And that's, that's what it is. Then, you only have to change one. Yeah. You only have to change one. If you can stop another kid from trying to commit suicide or, you know, to help another kid to be able to come out and, you know, because if you look in these magazines and stuff, and, and I think... This is another thing for me as well. It was like the trans community and the gay community and things have become communities that I'm extremely invested in as a human being. And I've been for about the last 10 years. And I I think the identification always came from just being a young black man because the similarities of how some people in society were perceiving us yeah. were extremely similar, do you know what I mean? Um, and this, and and we're still at a stage where these people don't have voices, you know. And the reason so many kids stay in crime when they're already in crime is because of shame and guilt. Because I'm not going to step out of crime now when I've been doing it for years. Because no one's going to give me a job. Everyone's going to laugh at me. Someone in the newspapers might publish a story about what I used to do. And we need to stop. We need to stop giving that power. Yeah. Well, that, anyone's, that, anyone's, that, anyone's, you end up living in fear of that, and you, you, that does nothing for yourself. You, you just need I did for 40 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, so it, it's, it, yeah, it's terrifying. 
So what's oh. the plans then for the the magazine? I mean, I've I've looked at it online. Um, you get a wee kind of feature where you do like twelve questions. I quite like that. Yeah. I think it's it's been really, really hard. And I think it's been really hard because when I started off, I only done it so I could shoot shows. And it was the dream. And you know, I think when I started off, I was like, I, I really did believe that everyone who worked at the magazine with me on the other one, I really believed they'd all come and help with this one. Um, and not all of them did. Um, and I believe there's a lot of reasons for that. There's... But I don't think any of them were. I don't think any of them were malicious. I just think everyone wanted to go and do their own thing, and and do you know what I mean. But I think the other thing as well was not being able to provide a source of income because a lot of these magazines for a long time have existed by not paying writers and not paying photographers. It's very much industry standard, uh-huh. and the, the the dream of our magazine through CIC and National National Lottery funding is to be able to pay expenses and to be able to pay small fees for people to commission work um, so people can feel valuable. And, you know, so we only really, during the lockdown, we only really focused on, there was only me and Dave, David Lancaster, and we just focused then on the most accessible thing was artists. So it was the 12 questions, the live reviews, um, and that's sort of always oh, we've stopped there with that. Although we have a page for opinions, so opinions are you know, if someone wants to rant, someone wants to shout, someone wants to talk about these issues. Opinions is for those kind of things. Um, we've got music reviews, album reviews, gig reviews, but I think all this stuff only really generates. The amount of writers you need is when you can make someone feel valuable and valid. Yeah. And that's when I can give someone some money to say, you know, the, here's the thing, right? Say we get a 17-year-old girl to go and shoot a gig in the middle of the city centre, yeah? Like, who in their right mind as a publisher would send that person to go and do a gig if they can't at least pay for them to get a taxi home at 2 o'clock in the morning? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's what we've been living with for the last 20 years, of magazines, I'll probably get shot down for this, magazines and promoters doing this as a thing is like, you should feel privileged that we're letting you come and review a gig for us. So no one's doing anything like that. No one's paying these kids any money. No one's giving them transport home. No one's giving them money so they can buy themselves a can of Coke and a, and a, and a cheeseburger. But then they'll have their photographs and they're writing afterwards. Do you know what I mean? And Yeah. You know, it, it enrages me. That's the thing I didn't realise. I mean, they, like these bands are then getting the promotion and uh, reviews and things like that. It's just asking. But even, when, back, even when you look, even, even when you look throughout the whole, the whole industry is, you know, I don't want to say too much, but the whole industry is definitely um, there needs to be a big reshuffle of of how we're appreciating our contributors because. I see, when I look at a band and I see a photographer or a writer, all these people are, are, are in the same, they're all doing the same thing. You know, the band's exposure doesn't exist without the writer, without the photographer. Do you know what I mean? We're not, it, it's not that we're doing favours for people. We're on the same level, but I think in some areas of the industry, I think some people aren't being appreciated. Yeah. 
as much as they should be. Um, and that, it's that thing again, isn't it? It's like, oh, but it, it must be so cool to go shoot the Libertines. It's like, well, it is, but it didn't buy me any food, did it? No. <laughs> so, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, it hits, hits it on the head straight away. It hits the nail on the head right away when you, you look at it like that. People still need mm. to put food on their table and things like that. Matter, I didn't mean the libertines then because the libertines do pay people, but it was just using it as an analogy. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying, though? Yeah, totally. You know? So, which, so as we were saying, so we get, you get a full year ahead of you now to kind of hopefully gigs yeah. are back and you can really kind of take the magazine forward this year with the funding and stuff like that. Um, obviously for the listeners let's just tell them the, the name of your magazine and where they can find it so like the magazine's called New Sound Generation and it can be found on, on the internet we have a website at www.newsoundgeneration.uk um, but it's on all social media platforms as well so it's on Facebook on Instagram on Spotify we have a playlist on Spotify Twitter and I think that's all at at nsgmagazinelive.uk. Um, but, you know, we're starting to spread. So we have got a writer in Glasgow. We've got two photographers in Glasgow. We've got a few in Manchester and that. So if there are local bands and there are people who want to get in touch, go on the social media pages and send us an email, our emails and all of them. Because the magazine's not about... Everyone wants to shoot a headliner, yeah? But how does a headliner become a headliner? Yeah. You start off somewhere, and we want to be part of that journey. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, if any any bands want to send us some music and get in touch or for an interview or anything, just give us a shout, and we're well yeah. up for it, man. I'll know. post um, I'll post all your links in the the description for people they they can. I'll uh, send them to you. Yeah. Got them, like, do you know what I mean? But yeah. yeah, so like you know, before we even go, just you know, the quickest success story that we've got is a girl called Elodie Hatfield. Uh-huh. where she's just interviewed Zuzu. And right. Zuzu's quite a big national artist at the moment. Um, and I found Elodie when I was shooting Youngblood at um, Liverpool Mumford Hall. And she was there taking photographs. I'm like, how are you here? She was like, I've just fluked my way in. I was like, do you want to shoot for a magazine? She was like, yeah, really. And she didn't get in touch for a few weeks. And then she did. And now she's shot Zuzu. Now she's interviewed Zuzu. Now, Elodie was 17 when she came to us. She's just turned 18 a few days ago, and she's just got to shoot a major UK national artist. So these are our people that we want to be aspiring to. Yeah. You know, So Elodie's sort of our little success story at the moment. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant story. Just, I mean, just before we go into the last part of your heroes, just another reason oh, yeah. Another wee story. It was your birthday this week, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I see. I seen you posted on Facebook. You got a message for another photographer. Yeah, that was pretty nuts, mate. That right. was pretty nuts. Yeah, you had to tell us yeah. that. That was a cracking little story. I've got a Google's bloody name right. So there was a guy. Well, there's a woman that I follow who's a friend in Liverpool. Now this friend ended up marrying a guy in Nashville who's a music producer. He ended up winning a Grammy for his music production. 
So through that, I ended up Facebook friends with this older guy who basically, I think it was the night, I don't know how much time he spent with John, John Lennon. So basically over the last few months of John Lennon's life, he took some of the most iconic pictures of John Lennon. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, the ones in Central Park, literally, you know, the ones within the few days mm-hmm. before he actually died. And we've never really spoke. He's just been on my Facebook, on my social media, you know. But if you go through his, I will send you his personal link so you can check out his stuff, right? Yeah. But if you go through his photographs and stuff, right, it's got like Patty Page, it's got like, he's shot Jimi Hendrix, it's like the doors, like, he's an old man, I think he's like, it's horrible to say that, isn't it, old man? So he's in his 80s, do you know what I mean? So he, and he's done all this stuff, you know. He, he posted something the other day. It was photos of him at Ground Zero, 9-11, actually when it's happening. Right. And it's someone else's photos of him. That's how prolific he was as a photographer. He's doing all the music stuff, but he's on the ground every day. Um, so he's been throughout the industry. And I got a lot of birthday likes on my Facebook. And, I, you know, I do feel like it's mad that people, took, you know what I mean? I think Facebook's an amazing tool. But he just popped up and it was like, hi, Billy, happy birthday. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? How is, how, how do you even know I exist, you know what I mean? So I sent him a message and said, thank you for the birthday thing. And he says, no, I just wanted to say hello because I think your photography is great. And that's all he said. And it was just like, it's impossible for something like that to happen because all I ever picked up a camera for was to make myself feel a bit better. And now it's at that stage. I'll tell you some of the weird synchronicities with this quickly. Mm-hmm. I live on a street called Catherine Street in Liverpool's Georgian Quarter. Uh-huh. It's called the Georgian Quarter. It's all Georgian houses. The next street to me, Percy Street, John Lennon shared the flat with Stuart Sutcliffe from uh-huh. the Beatles while he was going to the art college. The next street is Gambia Terrace, which is famous number four, flat three Gambia Terrace where he went to. Across the road there is the art college that he went to. 200 yards that way is Brian Epstein's flat where John Lennon wrote Love, Love Me Do. And then the guy who takes John Lennon's pictures. So I live on top of it all, do you know what I mean? It's... Yeah, I think that's just that's a brilliant new story that was I'm glad it kind of came up this week just before I had you in, man, because it's, it was a nice week. Do you know what? I think what it is, what's weird about it, though, is, is is it does that thing to you where, like, it brings everyone really down to a human level. You know, that we're all really human. We're all so connected. It's like, like, he should, he should be someone who's not just getting in touch with a kid around the corner who's taking photographs, but he became human. Yeah, and just went out and gave a birthday message, and I think that's what the beauty of the story is: is how we can all become human if we step out of ourselves a little bit, drop the ego, yeah, and just, just do, try, try and do nice things. Man. Yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't even it doesn't take long to go and um, wish somebody yeah, a happy yeah. birthday, but yeah. to realise kind of the effect it can have on that person. Do you know what I, mean? uh, I, I think yeah. like you're probably a bit like me though as well, where I think I struggle when when I, I struggle when I don't see people doing that stuff for strangers. I struggle where you know when like someone will just walk past someone on the street begging or something and be like, "Why are you just giving two seconds to say hello? What's your name?" 
Because yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I prefer to have a conversation and buy somebody a meal or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But the, the I think what was well, you're like, yeah, you, you, go on. The thing, the thing with us, you, you do that and then you walk um, 10 yards and there's another one mm-hmm. and then you feel bad that you can't, you can't do it. Yeah, long. definitely. Definitely. Um, that's another thing. That how do how do we, I think there's a, that's a sort of also an aspect of my own self as well. Of I, I tried some, you know, sometimes you have to bring yourself back down and look and go. I'm always screaming about the change and the differences that need to be made, but then sometimes I'm not even part of that change either. And maybe we should, I should be doing more. And do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because all these problems are solvable if we were all doing something about it. But that's the thing. It, it's it's all right. It's all well and good that the, the grassroots it, but it's the people mm-hmm. higher up that don't want it to change. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 I do find a lot of fear in the general public, though. I think the general. It's, it's all the stuff we spoke about again. I think people are conditioned to be afraid of certain people, and so last bit of the podcast. Four heroes to come for dinner, and what what you would cook them depending on how good I cook you. Well, do you know what? Right, do you know what's mad? It's in the magazine. I ask I ask artists this question. You know, yeah, it's it's three questions with us. We're like three questions. Um, so who would I invite and why? Uh, who go on? Who would I invite? Why and what I'd cook them? Yeah. So I had to write these down to make sure. Um. Right, John Lennon. Perfect. Just because, because right, because my I had an argument between would it be John Lennon or or Freddie Mercury, and it was John Lennon because I think I've got Freddie Mercury pretty much figured out. Where like John Lennon still baffles me. Like he would be, <laughs> he would be a messed up kid to have a conversation with. Like that 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 would get deep that with him. Yeah. Um, so John Lennon. Um, I think I'd cut them all the same thing. I'll say that at the end. So John Lennon, the second one would be Jesus. Um, just because, like, there's no, you know what I mean? You, you got to have Jesus to dinner, haven't you? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, just to find out a few things. Uh, yeah, and I want to see. I'd want to see what color he is. I want to see if he's white, like he's been painted. <laughs> Or I want to see if he's actually like Arabic and mixed race or, or darker skin. Because um, we've got phones now, we can take photos, can't we? So be like, nah, look, Jesus looks like that. Um, third one is Oscar Wilde. Uh, he's, he's, he's been my hero for a long time. Um, he's been my hero for about 20 odd years. Um, like, to the degree where during lockdown, all my savings, which I'd saved to buy a car, is I went on an Oscar Wilde Paris hunt. So I went to Paris during lockdown, just after lockdown. Right. And I went I went to his grave. I went to the, where, the hotel where he died. I went to several restaurants where he had food and dined and stuff. And that's been a dream of mine for like 20 years. Um, I think just for the, his story to me is just a magical one. I think it's, you know... There's a, there's a lot of you know similarities I think in a lot of us, mm-hmm. um, and then the last one's Mac Miller, who's um, 
he was. It's. I don't want to drop her name first, but the only way for people to know who it is is. So he was Aria Grande's boyfriend. Right. But he shouldn't be known as Aria Grande's boyfriend because on his own, he's prolific. As on his own, you go onto Spotify. I think he's got like thirty million followers. Um, but he was an American rapper from uh, Pittsburgh. Um. And his rap style, and he's just a genius. It's just completely, it wasn't kind of like, you know, your gangster rap, and that is very um, insightful and, and thoughtful rap about human nature and human life and your fallibilities as a human being. Um, and sadly, in 2018, I think, 2018, he um been on a cocaine bender with his mates. He was only 26, um, took some pills to get his, to sleep that night. And died of a fentanyl overdose. They'd been, um, which weren't meant to be in the pills. Right. So, but, but but him again. He's one of those. He's one of those people who's very um. Is is star shone brighter than most stars? Do you know what I mean? Burnt out yeah, too yeah. quick. So that's before, and I'd probably cut them. I'd have to. I'd have to cut them scouse, wouldn't I? It'd be scouse. Right. It'd be a pan of scouse. Yeah, of course. Yeah, where where scouse? Scouse. So Scouse is like a famous Liverpool dish. It's the only dish we've got. It's on that. So you've got haggis, haven't you? Yeah, we had we've that. Got right. I've never had haggis, you know. I'm dying <laughs> to, though. So yeah. Scouse is it's just a hot pot of basically beef, carrots, potatoes, gravy, usually, onions, and um, but Scouse is different for everyone in Liverpool. So everyone's nan makes Scouse differently. Right. So you go to some houses where there'll be peas in it, there'll be sweet corn in it, and so it was sort of that. But it came from it came from um, Scandinavian sailors in about the eighteen hundreds. It's the first mention in a history book of Scouse, and it was called Lobscouse. Uh-huh. And it was a stew that the Scandinavians, because we were like we're the third biggest port in the world at the time so the scandinavian sailors when they were coming here they used to come with this stew and we get a lob scouse and we called it scouse and you've got blind scouse as well which doesn't have meat in it but scouse is like the national dish of liverpool like right. it kind of sounds a bit like kind of maybe like mince and tarties or something up here what's that mince and tarties mince, mince and potatoes that's what we do yeah. Mince and potato. Yeah, just yeah. I think like scouse is more like um, it's like you you know your chunks of beef. Do you know what I mean? Or like braised steak or something, right? Or lamb or something. Do you know what I mean? It's definitely like a stew, like you know, like that know. sounds good. That sounds good. I might, I might. Never had it. No, you never had it. No, <laughs> no. no I've never well, been. I'm going to send you a scouse recipe. And I'll send you a recipe. Yeah, you do that and I'll, I'll make it for my missus. So thanks for coming on. And, uh, nice, no problem as well. Thanks for picking your heroes when they were class, when a good group of people to sit and have scouse with. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'll, as I say, I'll post all your links in the description. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast. 
or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1 or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others, and more importantly, enjoy. <laughs>